The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. This is Jason Poblet. Welcome to another edition of the Liberty Alliance podcast. Thank you all for joining us again. Today we have a special guest uh, from a fellow litigator, lawyer from Geneva, uh, Hillel Neuer. Hillel is the executive director of UN Watch, but he has uh, done a lot more, and we're going to get into a lot of that today. Uh, Hillel has been litigating uh, many, many years, and he is the man, of course, uh, now uh, at the UN uh, loves to hate, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that toward the end of the show. Uh, Hillel, how are you doing? All is good. Great to be on your show. Great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. So, Hillel, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, for all these lawyers out there who are interested in, in a career in, in doing human rights work, uh, how did you get into this, and uh, what advice would you have for them? Well, uh, my own background is I grew up in Canada. I studied politics and liberal arts in my first degree in college. And then I did law school in Canada. And then I made it eventually to New York City, where I worked at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison as a litigation associate, where uh, we did commercial litigation, but with practice of uh, a substantial practice of pro bono human rights litigation. And I did that for a few years. And then I moved to Geneva to become director of UN Watch. So that, that was my, my path. And I had been a writer before that, writing articles and op-eds in various newspapers and magazines on international relations. And so my background really is both law and international relations, you might say. And at UN Watch, we began to do various kinds of advocacy. Uh, some of it is activist, uh, of an activist nature at the UN, organizing many NGOs to sign appeals and that sort of thing. And part of it is legal. We do... We do legal petitions to, for example, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which is an expert panel of five independent experts that can issue opinions that are not legally binding, but which are influential in world opinion. I also participated on legal petitions, complaints to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, not to be confused with the Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Committee is an 18-member expert body that it too can sit as a quasi-tribunal for individual complaints uh, as, as a final appeal, as it were, when, when, when all legal remedies have been exhausted domestically, one can uh, make a complaint to the Human Rights Committee, as we did for a case of Libyan victims of torture. Uh, um, and, and after a couple of years, we got uh, a ruling, uh, an opinion in our favor. Again, it's not binding, but it is persuasive in many countries. So that's, that's the kind of work that, that's my background and the kind of work that I've been engaged in. Let me ask you, when just yesterday, we submitted a petition over at the OAS. You know, they have the Inter-American system has their own commission, and mm. uh, they even have an interesting process, a repertoire process with nations, of course. But we're going up against people like Cuba, for example, that 
ignore all of this. And that this will segue a little bit to the Human Rights Council discussion that we want to ask you about. But do do you what what's the utility of of a of these commissions, of these bodies, of this international human rights system? I mean, uh, your organization, UN Watch, is quite remarkable. For, I mean, and and they are at the forefront. And I urge our listeners to go to their website learn about what they do, especially young lawyers interested in doing this sort of work. UNwatch.org. UNwatch.org. And, and, and what Hillel's doing out there is, is, is quite unique. And I think folks should take a look and understand a little bit how this works. But for, for, for someone who's dealing with victims and you have to, you know, when you, when you approach them and say, this is worth doing. Um, I know we have people in Cuba, for example, that Sometimes they don't want to do this. They they they're scared. They say, "Why you know? Why do I need to go through some international body to defend my fundamental rights?" What's what's your message to them? It's not an easy decision uh, to to do this sort of thing. But what, what do you tell people when they when they come to you with this? Hey, hello. Uh, why should I go through this? I mean, there's bad people there. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, I'm sure we'll come to it. But the Human Rights Council notoriously includes some of the worst abusers of human rights today. Uh, they they the upcoming membership as of January 1st will be 60% non-democracies. As you know, Cuba, China, uh, Russia, uh, and other regimes were elected. Venezuela is already a member. So they're not the only ones, but they dominate. So you're quite right. That is the Human Rights Council. There are other bodies I mentioned that have more independent experts that are not, not made up of governments, but of appointees. Some of those appointees are legitimate ex- legal experts. Some of them are less legal experts and more you know, political appointees and are very much connected to regimes. So when, whenever you get into the UN, you're getting into a political body and it, things are, are highly politicized. That, that's something to know about. So if you ask me you know, what, if there's a human rights victim or a dissident who's been put in prison or who's been persecuted and, and, and they're asking themselves whether there's any merit to pursuing a UN uh, remedy, uh, you know, each case is specific. You know, if there's someone in prison you have to ask the family, what do you think is helpful? There are cases when attention is, is wanted. There are cases when attention is not wanted and people think the strategy is to speak quietly through some kind of uh, you know, back-channel discussions. And there's, there's no one answer for everyone. But our, our role primarily is being involved in the public advocacy. And when people decide that they want to go public, we're there to help them. And, and the things that we can do is we, our specialty is giving an international platform, an international voice to... Uh, victims of oppression. That's our specialty, whether it's through a press conference, whether it's through inviting them to speak at the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is amazing. When we bring Rosa Maria Payat and invite her to speak, and, and, and we just brought uh, Ariel, I can't remember his last name, but... Um, oh, yeah, he's uh, a doctor we, that was um, infected, that I think, was, with HIV. Yeah, or... yeah. So, you know, we've brought dozens of Cuban victims to speak at the UN, and and the re- you see the regime, how fiercely they try to block them and interrupt them. That shows that they care. Yeah. So th- th- we, we know that they care and we're able to put a spotlight. When they get interrupted, well, it's even more of a spotlight on them. And uh, we'd like them to finish their speech, but when they're interrupted, then, then you know, why did the regime block that person? Then you're on the news. And we've brought victims from human rights champions from Hong Kong, from Pakistan, from Russia, China, Venezuela, Zimbabwe. I mean, you name it. And they get to speak at the United Nations. Well, what, what is a higher venue than speaking at the United Nations? And the Human Rights Council, though we criticize it, one of the advantages is that it is a place where not just ambassadors can speak, where we can, as, a, as an NGO that's accredited, we can uh, delegate 
uh, we can accredit uh, Rosa Maria Payat to speak on behalf of Cuba or Dr. Yang Jen Li to speak about what's happening in China. And they have more credibility than anyone because of what they've been through because of what Rosa Maria Payat's father has been through. And Yang Jen Li was in prison for five years. So you bring them to the United Nations and they speak at the UN, their testimony goes around the world and it's testimony delivered at the UN. That's very powerful. So that's, that's one uh, venue. One way is, is putting on a spotlight through testimonies at the Human Rights Council. When you bring a petition to these groups, uh, even if you don't win, the, the fact that you brought the petition, there's international attention to it. Many cases you, you can win. The working group in arbitrary detention usually does rule in a rational way. And therefore we brought the case for, um, uh, his name is escaping me right now, but uh, I think he's the head of the Christian liberation movement who was just released in prison last year. Um, what was his name? In Cuba? Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, doctor, the doctor. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll come to me in a moment. Um, but um, we, we brought the petition for him and, and we got a ruling uh, saying that the head of the Christian liberation movement in Cuba was being held uh, arbitrarily detained. And, um, and so we can, we can get those rulings and they're, they're, they don't, they don't release the guy, you know, I mean, um, maybe they play a role. Maybe it adds a bit of pressure that you can embarrass a country, maybe. But all, these are all various opportunities that can turn an international spotlight and perhaps raise public awareness and mobilize pressure at the international level. And so most of the sophisticated activists and victims that we deal with uh, feel that it helps them. Again, it's not binding. It's not if the regime has you in prison, they can hold you in prison until, you know, until a tank comes to liberate you. But on the other hand, a number of political prisoners felt that when attention was brought, it did put pressure on the regime. So uh, that, those are the things that we can offer. And of course, each person, each case is specific, and each person has to decide what their own strategy is and what's advantageous to their own cause. Yeah, I think you were talking about the case of Jose Daniel Ferrer and his group, uh, that, that whole organization that was helped, uh, that was rounded up and locked up. I think you were involved yes. with them also. Yeah, I mean, you, you we, were, we, we were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and we'll, we'll direct people to the website. I think folks need to learn a lot about what, what, what UN Watch uh, does. It's a remarkable organization. One of the things we tell our clients, and I think you, you probably will agree with this, is um, Eli Wiesel, remember that 86 talk that he gave when he accepted his prize, where neutrality yes. helps the oppressor, never the victim. Correct. And Correct. silence, the, the part that we're talking about here, silence encourages a tormentor, never the tormented. And, and, and really, you have to lean in to these cases. And that's having someone over there in Geneva that can lean in as much as you, you do and your organization does. Yeah. Uh, and the case just... we brought was for, was for the jail dissident, Dr. Eduardo Cardet. Oh, oh Cardet, yeah. Eduardo, yeah, that's right. Dr. That's Eduardo right. Cardet. Eduardo Cardet. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there was a ru ruling. We got the ruling from, from the UN. So that was whether that played any role in pressure uh, on the regime. There's just no way to know. I'm, I think it does. I, I, I see the, re, the regime does not like to be challenged publicly. Um, yeah. I, know, I know that we, we've used WeGAD sometimes for even against Iran and uh, for, for Americans unlawfully imprisoned. And even though sometimes it seems like nothing happens to have those decisions and those opinions on the record, believe it or not, when they get out, it's also useful to have them. And, and yep, it, yep, it, yep, it, yep. it validates what the what the regime is doing. When we come back, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to pick up on on this discussion, talk a little bit about the Human Rights Council, its composition, and ask Hillel what he thinks needs to happen to make that a tool for the oppressed and not a weapon for these rogue regimes. So thank you, Hillel. Will you stick with us for one more segment? Great. We'll be right back. 
Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. Before we took that break, we were talking about the uh, the different mechanisms, some of the reasons why you do want to go public sometimes when you don't want to go public. Uh, we've mentioned a few times this Human Rights Council. You, you mentioned that 60% of it is now comprised of non-democracies. Right. This, this organization now, I guess, is it's about 10 years old or coming to its 10-year mark, I think. It was created uh, in 2006 to replace the discredited predecessor. So, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, been around, around for, for 14 years now. Yeah, It's been around. Okay, so it's been around for a while now. And um, do you think it's worth it? Do you think it's uh, worth reforming? What do we have to do to reform it? If, you know, Americans contribute a lot of money to the UN. We pulled out, as you know. Um, I'd like to get your views on that too. But two-part question then. Do you think it's worth keeping it and reforming it? And what do you think the U.S. role should be since the Trump administration pulled out of it? Yeah, well, look, it's it's not going away. So I want I, I want to deal in the real world. I don't deal in some imaginary world of, of uh, in the real world. It's not going away. The U.S. Uh, the, the Human Rights Commission was founded in 1946. It existed for six decades. Eleanor Roosevelt was the founding chair and had great noble principles and beginnings. Over time, it became hijacked. Many of the worst regimes became members. This was recognized when Gaddafi became the chair in 2005, Libya, and became a global embarrassment, and Kofi Annan was under pressure. And in 2005, he issued a report saying that we need to scrap the Human Rights Commission, it's become an embarrassment, basically what he said, selective, politicized, casting a shadow upon the reputation of the UN as a whole, quote unquote, Kofi Annan, February 2005. And he said, we need to create a new and improved smaller Human Rights Council that'll be made up of countries that actually have a solid record of human rights protection. A year later, in March 2006, we created the Human Rights Council, scrapped the Human Rights Commission, never happened before getting rid of a, a UN body in that fashion. Right. Um, so the Human Rights Council was created. The U.S. decided at that time not to join. Uh, John Bolton was the U.S. ambassador under President uh, George W. Bush. They decided that this reform was a failure and they did not want to join. And, um, you know, it, it didn't get better. Uh, the, the dictatorships actually got more powerful because in the reform the regional uh, representation skewed more in favor of non-Western countries and the U.S. was not there. And um, it became in many ways a, a very bad place. And those who got elected regularly, China, Cuba, Russia, Saudi Arabia, always elected, Pakistan, Venezuela, Chavez, Maduro. This was the Human Rights Council. A few cases they were able to criticize countries. Obama joined in 2009, made a strong effort to condemn certain countries, you know, North Korea, 
Syria, a few others, were condemned. But most of the world's worst abusers get a free pass. Never been one resolution, one inquiry, one special session on human rights abuses by Cuba, by Turkey, Erdogan regime, by Saudi Arabia against women, by Zimbabwe, uh, Venezuela, only a year or two ago after we lobbied for 10 years for something. Did they start doing something on Venezuela? Even now it's mixed. We did have a very strong resolution and a commission of inquiry, but then another resolution saying that Venezuela is a victim of the West. So you have two conflicting yeah. resolutions. Yeah. Um, but if you ask me what should be done, the reality is it's not going away. So America, uh, Obama was in it for from 2009 until I guess it was about 2017 when around 2018 when the U.S. pulled out. Under yeah, it was 2018. In 2018. 2018. Yeah. So the U.S. was in it for you know a good you know about eight eight years or so. Um, and tried to do certain things, but the U.S. left. If the U.S. departure would mean that the council would disappear, uh, then maybe maybe that would be a net benefit, maybe. But, uh, but the reality is it goes on, and it continues. And as far as the whole world is concerned, it's, it's, the, U, it's the U.N. Human Rights Council, yep. and you know they're all there. So it's not going away. And our opinion is if it's not going away, then at least you want to be present to call out the abuses and the perversions of, of fact, of, of morality, of human rights, of truth. And just the way that, you know, uh, Pat, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the venerable That's U.S. Right. ambassador in 1975, yeah. was one of the greatest speakers that the U.S. ever had at the United Nations. And when, when they had the, the, the obscene resolution saying that the movement for Jewish national liberation, uh, for Jews to have a home in their mm -hmm. ancient uh, um, indigenous homeland, Israel, uh, the, the Zionist movement, that that is, that is a form of racism, um, mm. that he, he famously called that out in, in a magnificent speech in 1975. Then in the 1980s, you had Jean Kirkpatrick, great defender of liberty, anti-communism. She called out the UN abuses. And then you had Nikki Haley, magnificent, uh, someone with extraordinary communication skills, calling out those, those lies at the UN. Those are good things. Those are good voices to have. I'd like to have those voices Give me a Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Give me a Gene Patrick. Give me a Nikki Haley at the Human Rights Council because the abuses are happening. So that's our opinion. We, we are one of the few groups that is actually saying terrible things are happening, but you should be there to call them out. That's our position. Well, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. In fact, in 2017, you said, I think you were testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you got asked this question or something similar to it. And, and I think any American listening to this uh, should take it to heart, not only what Hillel's just said, but this, that you also said we have to use it as a platform for good, that mm. if we're not there, and frankly, they're going to fill it. Yeah, they're going to fill it. They're going to be, they're going to make noise. And you mentioned Moynihan. No, not going away. You yeah, mentioned yeah. Moynihan, you mentioned yeah. Kirkpatrick. There's people like late Congressman Lantos and sure. uh, uh, Congressman Frank Wolf and Chris Smith, who's still in Congress, and yeah. so many others that uh, it's a space that, frankly, I think America needs to keep filling and filling it robustly because that that is a centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. Frankly, uh, we, we if we're going to engage in this space, we have to engage in all of it, especially in the spaces where we may not be so popular. Let me ask you something about why they called you before we head up to the end of what, our chat. Why are you the most I mean, I know why, but t tell our listeners, why are you the most hated man? At, at the United Nations or, or, or the most feared man at the United Nations. There's an interesting story behind that. Well, I think uh, mostly it's that the world's worst regimes who seek positions 
at the UN's highest human rights body. As we said, currently, Venezuela is a member, Eritrea is a member, Pakistan's a member. They just elected Russia, China, Cuba. Um, when we go in there and we are basically the only ones that are continuously calling them out and that are bringing victims of their torture and oppression. And uh, with, in, in Venezuela, we brought the Ledesma family, whether it was uh, his wife or his daughter uh, while he was in prison. And in Cuba, as I said, we brought Rosemary Paya and a dozen other victims uh, of, of Cuban oppression. And whether it's Zimbabwe and in, from Russia, uh, we brought you know Russian dissident who was poisoned, uh, Vladimir Karamurza, poisoned twice in a coma. We brought him, Yang Jian Li, political prisoner. When we bring these people and they mm -hmm. testify, the regimes have nothing to say. They, they, this is their own people uh, who right. testifying for eyewitness of, of, of how these communist um, uh, oppressive regimes uh, tortured them, put them in prison, and and it, and they can't run away. It's the only place in the world where you know where else in the world can you bring Yang Jianli to say I was I was tortured in Chinese prison in front of the Chinese ambassador? Mm -hmm. Where can you do that in the Security Council? You know the the our ambassadors are not going to bring victims to do that. It doesn't work that way. We can do that. So so that when they see me, they know I'm the one who's calling them out. And sometimes I bring victims. Sometimes it's me who just you know, says the truth in front of them in a place that is too often a, an assembly of darkness and, and Orwellian lies. And uh, whether it's because we don't think that the West is the problem of the world. We, we don't think any country should get a free pass. There are human rights abuses in the United States and in Europe and in Switzerland where I live, of course, but those are blots on the system that one should never equate with countries where the blot is the system. If you come from Cuba, if you come from China, if you come from Putin's Russia, you know that the blot is the system, that crushing an individual and destroying their freedom, that is the system. And no one from those countries who's, fl who's fled to the United States or to Canada or to you know, democracies in Western Europe will ever confuse or conflate uh, and will mistake the difference between a free democracy and a tyranny. Sadly, many in the West who are foolish um, and who think that the West is to blame for all the problems of the world, uh, they are very powerful at the UN. Groups like Amnesty International, which in many cases do good work, but if you if you you know understand their narrative, often it's that it's, there there's a Western domination of the rest. There's you know, they fault capitalism. They their enemies are the U.S. Their enemies are Israel. That is their worldview for many of the human rights groups at the UN. Not all, but too many of them is an anti-Western, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, anti-Israeli narrative. We don't have that narrative. Again, we don't think any of those countries get a free pass, but we don't think that they're the fault uh, of, of, what's, of what's wrong with human rights in the world. We do think the communist tyranny that, that crushes freedom for you know, 1.4 billion people and Vladimir Putin poisoning dissidents uh, and Cuba you know, crushing dissent and assassinating Oswaldo Paya, uh, we think they are the problem with human rights in the world and their systems of oppression, okay, whole systems. And, and our narrative is, uh, which is a very simple and true narrative is very rarely heard at the UN. So when I walk in there, whether it's a dictatorship or whether it's often radical left activists uh, who are sympathetic to the dictatorships and who work hand in hand with them because they both have a common agenda, which is in some ways to attack the West, to attack capitalism, to attack individual liberty. They have a lot in common. So when I walk in, I'm everything they hate. That's remarkable. I love it. <laughs> that's great that's great work and um again uh, we we need to stay engaged the way you're getting you're staying engaged then uh, it's it's a it's a ray of hope 
for oppressed peoples that I know reaches uh, the world over. As, as we wrap up, two quick things. Brief thoughts on the ICC. I know, I think I know what you're going to tell us, but what are your thoughts about where you think its role is in the international system? And same kind of general question, do you think we should stay engaged with that process? The ICC is a very sad story. This is the International Criminal Court, again, whose founding origins, like the Human Rights Commission, are noble and, and, and good. The, the notion of that, that the world would, get to, would gather, would assemble solemnly and try to uh, hold accountable those who perpetrate atrocities and crimes against humanity is a noble one. It began, you might say, with the Nuremberg tribunals, uh, which were a very, very important moment in world history, and that this would be kind of a permanent Nuremberg war, war tribunal for uh, leaders of, of regimes that commit the worst crimes, and that it cannot be held accountable. And you fast forward, and it was created about 20 years ago, um, and you fast forward to today, and you know, has has the Chinese regime ever been held accountable for genocide against the Uyghurs? No. Right. Uh, has Vladimir Putin been held accountable for crushing uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine and bombing, barrel bombing individuals in Syria? No. Has Assad been held accountable? No. In the end, they're they're trying to indict Israel. There's a preliminary investigation into Israel, which is a democracy, right. defending itself from thousands of rockets fired against its people and doing it in a way that no one in history has ever responded in as proportional uh, a manner to thousands of rockets fired against its populace and and for Israel for having the gall to defend itself and trying to hit back at Hamas terrorists, then Israel is being hauled before the International Criminal Court, which is absurd, especially given that Israel is one of the countries that, that more than any other holds its leaders to account. That's Former right. Prime Minister Olmert was in prison. There was mm. a, a, a president was in prison for for, for accused of, of sexual harassment and rape. And it, it's a, it's a, the defense minister had to resign after one of the wars. It's a government that holds itself accountable more than any other, which is the whole notion of the criminal court is that they don't intervene when you have systems of accountability. That's the whole premise. And yet it's abused by politics. So Israel's being, being indicted and now also the United States, they're trying to, which again, no one should get a free pass. And if the US committed crimes in Afghanistan or elsewhere, they should be held to account. But the idea, that something that's supposed to go after countries that have no systems of accountability, and in the end, they're putting democracies uh, on the docket, not only, but, but in a significant part, whereas some of the worst criminals get a free pass, something is wrong over there. And I think that the US is right to uh, try to resist their moves. And I think it's very sad because again, the principles are the most noble. And I think it's very sad that donor states like the Netherlands and other European countries, Canada, should ask themselves, you know, what are they doing to stop the politicization, which has really uh, undermined a body that had such noble beginnings? That's spot on. And talking about donors, and as we wrap up, I want to ask you the last question. We ask all our guests this question. Uh, U.S. taxpayers that contribute, in this case, over $10 billion a year to the U.N., roughly. That's about a fifth of our foreign aid money. Which overall, it does it's as a as a total of our federal budget, it's not a whole lot of money, but it does represent significant funding. It's it is funded by Americans. What would you tell them in this space that we're going into now? I I think American politics, in fact, no matter who wins the election, we're going into a phase where we're reassessing our our role in the world. I I, I for one think we need to stay engaged. Uh, but what do you tell U.S. taxpayers? Is this worth 
investing in? Is is putting money into this organization, these different international systems, something America needs to do? And yeah, and well, look, no, I, I think it's I think it's it's complex. Let, let's acknowledge it's complex. In that ten billion, as you know, there's all kinds of different bodies that get it. Some of it goes to the UN itself, and some of it goes to UN agencies, which might be like the World Food Program which even if the UN didn't exist, America, because it is America and it's never gonna turn its back on the world, at least the America that I know and that we believe in is an America that accepts its international uh, leadership and will try to be a humanitarian leader in the world. And if the people are starving, America can't do everything, but wants to you know, contribute its part. And so it will want to give money to an international body that's gonna take care of things because America can't do everything itself. So there will be international bodies and a number of these international bodies are today part of the UN system. Um, and so I think the US should continue to support these various bodies, but with the caveat that they have to be held to account. They can't get a free pass. And too many in the international system don't wanna hold um, international bodies or aid officials to account. So there has to be accountability, whether it's financial or you know whether it's harassment or sexual abuse by aid workers, these things happen. We need to have accountability. But I think the US, fundamentally cannot walk away from its commitment to the world. At the same time, there can be individual bodies. UNESCO is a famous example, which get too politicized. And the US at various times can ask itself whether it's useful at all to be funding them. Or uh, there may be various bodies where, where, where leverage the, the financial um, uh, support of the United States can be used as leverage to achieve reform. So I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's it's right for the U.S. to say we're going to end all funding of international uh, agencies. It's not realistic. I don't think it's good for the U.S. or good for the world. But it should be America should demand complete accountability and and more transparency. It's something the U.N. is terrible at. There's very little transparency, and that's something the U.S. should be pushing much more for accountability and transparency. Hello, Neuer. Thank you for taking time from your very busy schedule to join us today. And um, I hope that you'll join us again. And we hope that we can help you out there if you need it. Let us know. And um, anytime that you need a platform to reach folks over here, we'd be happy to host you. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Take care. All the best. All right. Thanks. Hello. My pleasure. All right. Have a good Looking one. Forward. Take care you of yourself. Too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, it's Jason with the Global Liberty Alliance. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Before we wrap up the last segment, I want to just share with you two brief uh, announcements. First, thank you. Thank you for uh, your support, for your questions, for listening, for sending us so many suggestions for guests and for uh, topics. We will continue to read them and please keep them coming. So on behalf of Arthur, Cara, Mariana, Mauricio, Veronica, our network of lawyers and independent, uh, you know, civil society leaders in the places we work, thank you for listening and for uh, expressing uh, the enthusiasm for some of the work that they are doing uh, in Latin America and hopefully soon in other places. Second, in order to expand our work, we need your support. So please consider investing. Uh, please consider uh, putting some of your uh, sweat equity if you want. We can put you to work, but we also need your money. We need your support. Consider investing. There's many ways to give. 
look and learn more about it at our website at www.globallibertyalliance.org. That's www.globallibertyalliance.org. You can click on the invest button and you can also check some of the work we're doing. Keep in mind that's just a example of some of the work uh, we've done that we continue to do. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, please contact us. Let's get back to the show. Thank you very much.